0: everywhere Buddhist practice has gone, it's adapted. That's actually a good thing, because in each different region that Buddhist practice goes to, it encounters different people with different cultural identities, beliefs, worldviews. When Buddhism went to Japan, it encountered Taoism, and it created Zen, and in China, Chan Buddhism. Uh, When Buddhism went to the Himalayas, it encountered a very rich culture filled with uh, many beliefs, gods, traditions, uh, cultural practices, which were incorporated... Into Vajrayana Buddhism. When it went to Southeast Asia, it encountered uh, traditions in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and all of those countries have their own flavors. Uh, Sri Lanka has brought us the Basudi and the path to purification, which is one very rich tradition of Buddhist practice and Burma and Thailand uh, were the foundations of Vipassana and Insights practice, which is a very psychological school of Buddhist practice, which I personally have been uh, teaching and studying and uh, got my training in and have studied with monks. And so um, I think it's a good thing, and it's a very important to understand how wide the uh, not just Buddhist school is, but then there's other spiritual traditions as well. And there's no uh, need to cling on to any spiritual path with the belief that it's the right path. It might be the right path for me or for you, but any other spiritual path is certainly certainly valid and. Um, the Buddha set a very important example of not proselytizing others. He, in fact, when he met people from other spiritual paths, he requested them not to become a Buddhist. Uh, in fact, there wasn't even really a term Buddhist. Um, so when, the, when Buddhism came to the West, probably the dominant cultural flavor it's encountered with science. Um, if somebody wants to buzz that person in, that, I'd be grateful. Thank you. Um, so, science. Love it or hate it, it's pretty much the dominant flavor of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, technology, uh research, scientific advances, they're pretty much, uh, we're pretty glued to it. And um, certainly it's had a very large impact on the way that Buddhism has been presented (coughs) throughout the West. Mindfulness is a term was started by largely by John Kabat-Zinn. And, it, and he took the teachings of Buddhism, but he stripped away the language and some of the, the beliefs like karma so that it would be presentable in Western institutions that are allergic to anything with a spiritual flavor to it. And that's all very fine. So, so long as we're in the West, and I actually am... Uh, Unashamedly, somebody who finds uh, uh, neuroscience and clinical psychology to be fascinating, I'm very interested in the ways that Buddhist practice can be influenced and can grow uh, in that direction. None of this means that it's the right way. And I know lots of Buddhist practitioners that prefer the flavor of the East and uh, like their spiritual practice have an element of the unknown and the moment I start talking about dopamine and, and serotonin and which areas of the brain are activated by meditation they think it's removing the, the most important flavor or the most important element to their practice and that's fine but I am who I am. (laughs) So, um, the Buddha himself certainly had a very scientific-like mind. He investigated. uh, He was, in essence, a proto-psychologist, phenomenologist. He studied the way the mind worked. He came up with very detailed lists of the aggregates of awareness, the, uh, the stages within which uh, perceptions arise. He was somebody who pretty much uh, brought a very curious mindset to, uh, to understanding how consciousness and the mind creates stress and suffering. His concepts such as Vedana, the idea that beneath all mental states there is a physical uh, underlying component that pushes and prods us in certain directions to, make, to aid us in decisions or to influence our decisions, has now been verified by neuroscientists like Joseph Ledoux. His concept of Nama Rupa, that mind and body arise at the same time and they are interconnected is very, very contemporary. So, some of the perspectives that new Buddhist or synaptic Buddhism might be is the first is that um, not to demystify the mind, but to understand that for every mental event we experience, there is a physical brain state that is its equivalent. Now, obviously, some Buddhists hate this idea because it kind of nullifies the idea of rebirth. And if you want to cling to rebirth, that's fine. It's not a prerequisite uh, to abandon that by any means. I personally tend to be of the view that the mind is to, is, uh, arises with the brain, and if you don't have a brain, you don't have a mind. When your brain goes, I'm, I'm fairly confident that my mind will go with it. But that's, again, you don't have to believe that. However, from a scientific perspective, not only is there a brain state, but it's, an, it's now becoming more and more observable. And what we can observe is that the way we use our brains changes our brains. As neuroscientists say, neurons that fire together wire together. The regions of the brain that you use literally make those parts of the brain stronger. So if you fire your amygdala, you're constantly under stress and in fear and worried about things, guess what? You're strengthening those impulses and you're weakening the ability to override them. If on the other hand, if you focus your awareness on developing... Attention, sustained attention, you're strengthening the cingulate. And people who meditate, when they view the progress after two months under fMRI, PET scans and stuff like that, they can see significant differences. (coughs) Finally, the most uh, important realization is neuroplasticity and the realization that not only can we rewire our minds, but we can rewire our, our minds simply via thought. There's a study by Harvard that if you simply imagine yourself playing a piano, you don't actually do it, you don't need a piano. But if you simply imagine that you're playing a piano and doing scales for two weeks, In only two weeks, you start to rewire the somatosensory lobe, so that you will become much more sensitive at the fingertips regions of your hands. Even though you haven't touched a piano, you've changed the wiring of your brain. People who uh, focus on certain memories can hardwire those memories as they've shown now in the temporal lobe. So, um, neurons that fire together wire together, as, neuro- as neuroscientists say, and you can change your own brain. And this is very important, because for a long time, people who uh, lived in the West believed that we were pretty much stuck, that experiences happened in childhood which wrote or were deeply embedded in the brain, and that was pretty much it. The Freudian view, although it had many wonderful, wonderful observations, was pretty much that we were stuck. If trauma or difficult events or attachment styles happen in early childhood, there was no possibility of unwiring those experiences, and we now know that that's not the case. And actually, this is one of the reasons why meditation is so vastly important because not only is it the most studied in neuroscience of all the ways we can activate and work the brain, but it's also been shown to be the most efficient way to rewire your brain. No other tool available to you is as efficient if you want to change your operating system. If you have a Mac, you go on every other day, they've got a new operating system. Generally, uh, we humans have been working with the same operating system for 50,000 years since the last major upgrade, which happened... (laughs) For you uh, geeks, that simply means that was the when we stopped crossbreeding with Cro-Magnons. And pretty much since then, there hasn't been any change in our uh, brain structure. So we're pretty much stuck with the same brains that were dodging bisons and bears and you know, wild boars, and uh, where every moment of life was just a survival achievement. We've, we are born with that operating system. We are born with an operating system that says, holy shit, I could die any fucking moment. Holy shit, that person looked at me in the subway funny, they're going to kill me. That's that's the brain, the operating system that we're born with. So unless we take time to uh, rewire the mind, we get to live in needless fear, needless agitation, needless worry, needless obsessive uh, concerns, even though, uh, quite frankly, even though the news would tell us otherwise, uh, in terms of human lifespan and and safety and likelihood that you will reach a ripe old age, you are living in the safest time in history. Your brain won't want you to know that. So what are some of the breakthroughs that are being provided by this rich climate of research and science that could be incorporated usefully into our spiritual practice? The, um, I'm going to go over some of the latest findings, and you can feel free to not use any of these. They're just for your consideration. The verse is a recent study by Harvard, determined that <clears throat> 47% of the time we are not aware of what we're doing. <laughs> we are actually doing something while our minds are thinking about something else or are only partially aware. And it turns out that those are the moments in life that we are least happy. Rather than bringing us joy, the ability to abandon what we're doing and focusing on and wander off into ideations, our ideations and fantasies and rich virtual realities, rather than painting lovely little worlds of vacation paradises and beachfront rooms, it turns out we tend to think of ourselves as penniless broke and worry about being fired or... Uh, Things that are totally beyond our control. The mind, when it's untethered, is run by a region called the middle brain and the ventromedial axis, which you knew, and uh, um, that's a, a part of the wiring that's extremely vulnerable to input from the fear regions of the brain. So the less you are focused on what you're doing, the more likely you are to become caught up in fear worry, agitation. It turns out from the study that it really didn't matter much what people were doing. We all profess, I hope, to love sex, or at least enjoy it very much. But in fact, it really doesn't matter whether it was sex or doing the dishes. So long as people were focused on what they were doing, they reported that they were much, much happier than when they were untethered. Lurching around in Facebook, text messaging, doing uh, the things that we tend to do when we are idle. So, the key to these states that bring about lasting peace is that you have to sustain them for about a half an hour. And B, you can't—they can't really involve too much cognition. Generally, states where we're involved with what we're doing are things we can focus awareness on. They often involve the hands. They often have a slightly physical quality to them or they are very much engaged in focusing the mind. But we don't pull away from what we're doing to get lost in thought or plan a response. So anytime you're in those states, you're in what neuroscientists know as flow. And when you're doing that, your brain is not only much happier, but it's 50% more efficient. So what we can learn from this is if you've got something that you need to get done, the fastest and happiest way to do it is to turn off the phone, turn off the browser, focus on what you're doing, and stick with it. Once you get a half an hour in there, not only will you be in the most efficient brain, but you'll be in your happiest state because you won't be being tugged away by thoughts about, holy shit, what will my retirement look like? <laughs> the second nice new bit of information is that it turns out, unlike what they taught me when I first started meditating in the... Well, I grew up in a Buddhist family, so I, I it sounds like a very impressively long time, but... Um, Certainly in the 80s, everybody was talking about how important the in-breath was, but actually it turns out that it's the out-breath that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which allows you to relax when you're anxious. So rather than focus on taking nice deep in-breaths, which are fine, I mean, they can actually trip the vagus nerve and that will help release a little bit of serotonin, but if you really want to... Uh, unwind yourself if you're in a panic attack you've worked yourself up into a fluster it turns out they've found that the most efficient way to do that is to extend the length of your out breaths as long as possible making them as smooth as possible the longer your out breaths the more you turn off the uh, sympathetic nervous system which is the thing that gets you wired up and in state of alert Now, why is this? Well, it turns out that anybody that is breathing like this, nothing the fuck is going on to that person. (laughs) There's nothing happening. So, when you do that, you're telling your mind it's all okay. I'm not about to be attacked. I'm not about to be eaten. I'm actually okay. I'm... I'm not in any danger. The funny thing is, is if you try to simply tell yourself that with the left hemisphere of the brain, it won't work because the amygdala, the fear part of the brain, doesn't understand a word that your left hemisphere says. It's too late in the process. However, the amygdala does pay attention to how you breathe. So if you want to stop yourself from getting worked up, anxious, bent out of shape, the most efficient way is actually not to try to reason with yourself, but it's to change the way you breathe out. So, number three. Unlike what every, you've heard probably in most Buddhist talks, uh, it turns out that While meditation is extremely important in rewiring the brain and helping us uh, develop a way to uh, build a proper attention and awareness that can hold uh, our feelings, and it's extremely important. The one thing that it cannot do very well is help us regulate difficult emotions. It turns out we need other people for that. Sorry to disappoint you. But the icky and ucky role of having other people in your life and being able to share your feelings is essential if you want to develop what's known as affect regulation. That's why the Buddha said that the Sangha, having other spiritual people in your life, was the foundation of the spiritual path. Because no matter how much we like to think that we can... uh, control, figure out, understand what we're feeling in our emotional states and feel open and create a safe container. The experience of repression and disavowal and uh, all the emotional abandonment that we've done in our lives has been because we've not been safely mirrored or empathetically bonded with other human beings in our infancy and during the key periods of our life. And if we want to undo this damage of repressing the emotions that we don't like other people to see, our fear, our sadness, our, uh, our frustration, our aggression, all the meditation work in the world will not help you properly be able to hold and regulate and feel and experience those emotions without the help of somebody else. It's really important to understand this. Um, alcoholism, drug abuse, is an attempt to replace other human beings with chemicals and with with uh, drink. It's an attempt to regulate our emotions, but it doesn't work. The only way we can create a truly safe container is through expressing the things that we've Learned over time to repress because our parents are the people in childhood didn't allow us to feel those feelings. That's why uh, when I come into this room and it's you know, before I teach and before I sit down, and everybody gets all quiet. I, I wish I could say, No, 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 talk to each other. <laughs> That's what the point before and after these these things are for, to talk about how you're feeling. What are you experiencing? And we don't need somebody to fix us or give us suggestions. And if somebody opens their feelings to you, sometimes we feel awkward because we might not know what to say, and that's fine. What human beings really, really deeply need are not solutions, are not advice are not directives, what we really, really need is somebody who will give us permission to share and just receive the empathetic bond that human beings can give each other. Just doing that does all the work that you need to open and begin to reclaim all those emotions that we've abandoned because we weren't allowed to express them in our earlier lives. So, uh, another important thing to note is the importance of slowing down. Slow down. It turns out that one of the most rampant, destructive uh, causes of illness today is chronic stress. Almost all of the 21st and 20th century diseases have uh, roots in chronic stress. In earlier times, they might be excessive labor, or they might be from food poisoning, or from different... And uh, a lot of people observe that probably some of the cancers are environmental, and that's true, but actually the greatest threat to your lasting health is stress. The release of cortisol in your brain and in your bloodstream is associated not just with, let me read the list, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, gastrointestinal, asthma, and also forms of cancer, but it's also now linked to all of the uh, immune deficiency illnesses such as chronic fatigue and Epstein-Barr. It's pretty much the current malaise that we don't realize how much stress we are under. And the thing that keeps us most in stress is the overscheduling, the busyness, the never stopping and coming to a rest in life, the constant narrative that drives us to feel we need to accomplish more and more and more. How do you know when you're under chronic stress? Well, there's a couple of clear signatures. The first is that if you find yourself constantly looking for things, if you're constantly looking for your keys, can't find your wallet, where did I put my purse? Holy shit, what did I do with this? That's a sign that you're doing damage to the hippocampus because that's the first thing that starts to go with stress is our short-term memory. Um... We can't form memories while the amygdala, which is the stress part of the brain, is firing. So if you're under stress, you won't be able to perform short-term memories as well as you normally would. Um, Waking up feeling extremely tired, even though you've had a long night of sleep, means that you're using your sleep rather than to... Uh, do the things that the brain needs, the oxygenation and the reformatting of memories. Instead, you've been using your sleep just to continue stress patterns going on. Uh, Also, if you wake up and it turns out you've been grinding your jaw. Also, there's a tendency that uh, people have when they work long hours or they're under stress where the parts of the body that they don't use and their job becomes very stressed out, rather than the part of their body they do use. So if it's simply a repetitive motion injury, if you work on a computer, it'll be your right hand, if you're right-handed, the thing that you use the mouse with. But if it's stress, it'll be your left shoulder, your left side, because you're holding the unconscious stress, actually, in the part of the body that's not being activated more so than the part that is. Uh, Irritability. Now, this is a tough one, but in general, if there's always a bunch of stuff that you're carrying around with you about how other people aren't living up or doing what they should, narratives like that, it probably means that you're carrying around an agenda that's too busy. Um, Never fully arriving in life, feeling that you can relax, this feeling that there's always something more that has to be done that you can never... You know, just let go. These are some of the symptoms, and what is the way that we can undo this pattern? There's actually a couple of exercises that are really useful in undoing chronic stress. The most important and most fundamental one is to do something really idiotically slowly during the day. Yeah. Take that lunch break and instead of keeping the same pace and the same mind that you have throughout the day racing around, walk to the, uh, wherever you go, wherever you sit and have your lunch as slowly as you can. Bringing all the awareness fully into the action of walking slowly. Don't allow yourself to get out of flow and move back into wandering mind. Stay very present moving really slow. Another practice is to have a ritual at the end of the day where you flush the stories and narratives and the build-up of of, uh, momentum and busyness from the body. So I really recommend, even when it gets cold, after you get out of work or whatever it is you're doing, to step outside, find a really comfortable place, and before you rush to the subway... Or if you do have to rush to the subway before you get home, just sit somewhere in a park, in a bench, by the river, anywhere that's even remotely uh, a place you can give yourself permission to sit. And just take a moment to breathe in and out, become fully present, and set an intention to put aside all of the stories that have accumulated throughout the day. As Einstein said, There's no better way to solve a difficult experience during the day than to put it aside at night and to just give yourself permission to think about and focus on other things. If you're carrying around your work with you into the hours of the day when you're not at work or carrying relationships when you're not in the relationship, that is the surest sign that you're setting yourself up for stress. Finally, um, it's really, really important to be creative in your meditation. They found that the most important part of the brain that's empowered by meditation is uh, in the left hemisphere, the cingulate, which is the thing that allows you to sustain awareness. And the left hemisphere is the really optimistic can-do part of the brain. When people have strokes in the right hemisphere of the brain, they wind up really chipper, happy, and optimistic. When, On the other hand, when people have uh, strokes in the left hemisphere, not only do they lose the ability to use language, but they also wind up really fucking irritable and depressed. Because the part of the brain that is in control of the left hemisphere is the... uh, Feelings of empowerment, feelings of can-do, feelings of uh, being more in control. And uh, that's why when people really get into long, sustained meditation practice, every study shows they wind up happier. And they wind up feeling more empowered in their life. The trick, though, is you can't get into a meditation practice that is a routine If you fall into a habit of simply watching the breath for 30 minutes and doing nothing else, or simply uh, meta over and over and over again, while it will have its benefits in neurally implanting those into the habitual parts of the brain, you won't be actually strengthening the cingulate as much. If you really want to uh, strengthen that part of the brain and really get the true benefits of a lasting practice, it's worthwhile varying your meditations. One day doing metta, one day doing concentration, one day vipassana, or mixing all three into a meditation. Vipassana is the meditation where we don't have a focused awareness. We allow anything to enter the mind and we observe it and we just use present time sensations as an anchor to keep us from being sucked up into uh, what's present. But these varying of the meditation allow you to constantly use that part of the brain that sustains interest and attention and investigation. And that's the part of the brain that will be most not only useful in making you feel happier but it'll also be that part of your brain that when you engage in creative endeavors or you want to write the great American novel or paint the great American painting, you'll need that part of the brain. So, to summarize, um, if you can do 20 minutes of a day of meditation, that has been shown to be the... the the neural baseline of rewiring the brain. The easiest way to do that is not do it in silence on your own, but to listen to guided meditations. Dharma Seed. If there's one word to bring away from here tonight, Dharma Seed. That's where all the Buddhist teachers have all their talks for free in their guided meditations. Uh, Focus awareness on what you're doing. The more your mind wanders, the le- more likely it's going to wander into a dark, neurotic place. <laughs> Extend the out as long as you can when you're worried or anxious. Check for signs of chronic stress and slow down. Have routines to flush the narrative of the day from your awareness. Find other people who can hear you express your emotions without needing to give you advice all the time. <coughs> I thank you for listening. I hope there was something of value in there. So, now we need to uh, have a moment for people to... Uh, and then I'll call up Phil. For people to... If you do leave, uh, it's... Again, if you can, donate so that we can pay the rent. Because our rent just went up. And uh, I'd be really really grateful so that we can uh, keep ourselves in this space. all Hey. Hey, Josh. Great, really great. Really great. The whole time you were talking, not the whole time, but especially towards the end, I kept thinking of um, Louise Hay's book, You Can Heal Your Life. Because mm. in the back of the book, she lists a number of diseases and and then <clears throat> attributes of human emotion that she felt caused those can cause those diseases. And um, you know, I, I remember when I was first diagnosed with MS when I was 28 or so, 29 years of age, multiple sclerosis. And uh, you know, I, I from the age of 16 to about I, I had a really. It's funny because. From 16 to about 21, I thought I was really having a good time. Mm. And uh, you know, I I, I left home uh, at the age of 16. I ran ran away from home, and uh, by 17, I hitched across the country, went to California, and I was doing a lot of crazy stuff in those days. And um, I thought it was